I want to let you know that as we have come to our final message, after this sermon, there will be no more for this conference. I want you to know that I actually leave here very, very encouraged and very, very revived. I have been extremely ecstatic by the decisions that many of you have made, by the courage that has gone in to you making some seriously difficult decisions. And also, I've been very encouraged to rub shoulders with many of you and to find out just that quiet revival that seems to be happening here at Southern. There's not a lot of big hoopla. We don't have any big fanciful fireworks surrounding these events. And perhaps there doesn't need to be. One of the most amazing events in Earth's history happened in a manger when God became a baby. And there was only three shepherds there. So in the same sense, I can imagine that could it be that one of the most amazing events to happen in this earth's history could be just the same this weekend. I want to challenge you to embrace that mindset. And as a result of that, the title of my message tonight is Evermore. Evermore. And the reason why I wanted to give this message is because I want to encourage you. Is that okay? I feel like I've been beating up on you all week. Have mercy. So I remember asking Israel last night when I got home, I said, do you think I was too harsh? I want to make sure people know that I love them when I preach to them. That's why I preach the way that I preach. I don't want people thinking for one second that I don't believe what I'm preaching. I'll take that one amen. <laughs> so, I want to encourage you tonight. You guys have heard that the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept, right? I disagree. It actually ties for first place. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 16, it says, Rejoice evermore. Did you know that? So now they say the shortest verse has two words, Jesus wept. Well, it ties for first place. The other shortest verse in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 16. And it says what? Rejoice evermore. Did you know the Bible never says pray evermore? Of all the practices in the Christian experience, it doesn't say, let's study our Bibles evermore. He never says that. The apostle does not write, go ahead and fast evermore. <laughs> Praise God, right? <laughs> the Bible doesn't say, give alms evermore. It says, rejoice evermore. That means there will never come a time in your experience, if you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, where rejoicing will have reached its cap. There is no glass ceiling to joy with God. Throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, a finite mind cannot conceive of it. And so the apostle writing in another of his letters said, eyes have not seen, 
ears have not heard, and neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. What do you prepare for someone that loves you? The Bible says, now imagine this. You know, you see those pictures on Facebook, right, when somebody gets engaged and they show you the whole step-by-step process. And we say, this is what he prepared for the one that loved him. This is what she prepared for the one that loved her. Now imagine if that someone is God, who created color, who invented harmony, and the beautiful music that we listen to. This is an instrument man-made out of strings. Jesus took sound and divided it into harmonies. Now imagine what he has prepared for those that love him. And so he says, rejoice evermore. More and more rejoicing. So this evening, as we are on the very precipice of the Sabbath, I want to give you five reasons why you should have joy in your life. The reason why this is so significant is it's also a very compelling tool for evangelism. Permit me to give you some statistics. Suicide has increased over 60% over the last 50 years. More young people are killing themselves than ever. Even at my own institution, Eastern Michigan University, I had, was, I had been awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Award scholarship. And I was, had the privilege of speaking to the faculty and to the community as a result of receiving that, reward, that award. And as I was walking out of that session, I was approached by one of the professors who had written my recommendation for the award. She said, Sebastian, something terrible has happened. It's such a terrible thing that it would darken such a day as this. One of the students at Eastern Michigan University who was in a fraternity, very up-and-coming young man, doing well in his studies, had decided to take his life. He hung himself in his dorm to his death, it seems as if it is spreading everywhere. It would interest you to know even further that one million people successfully commit suicide every year. To put that in perspective, that's one person every 40 seconds commits suicide somewhere in the world. But it goes even further than this because those are the people who are successful The actual statistic for attempts is a person tries to take their life once every four seconds. A person dies every three, I'm sorry, every seven seconds. And a person is born every three. So can you imagine? People are attempting to take their lives as often as people are bringing life into this world. And there seems to be as research has been conducted. What compels people to jump off the edge? What compels people to feel as if I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning? I don't want to live life. And they found these reasons. Lack of hope. Inability to face 
the future. I remember as a child, I was very, very, I was just a bad child, say that. <laughs> and I remember those days when I knew I was going to get my share of beatings. <laughs> and I remember sitting in my room waiting, inability to face the future. And as a child, I used to think, man, I wish I could just die right now, <laughs> just so I don't have to go through this. But it's one thing as a child, you never really take any measures. And I remember one time I, I was continually on punishment. In my home, you didn't get punishment. You had like courtroom sentences. Five years in your room. It's like, man, I'm always on punishment. Only thing I needed was some weights to work out while I'm on punishment. But this inability to face the future an inability to rise amidst the ashes of life, that sometimes catastrophe comes our way as Christians, does it not? Sometimes disappointment comes creeping around your corner. And the difference for the Christian is that we have a joy even beyond that's not based on circumstances. It's not based on whether the future looks hopeful or not because there's one future for a person surrendered to Jesus. One guaranteed destination. You've already got on board the airline. You're already flying. It doesn't matter if you're in first class or if you're in the back of the plane. The destination is the same. And in this sense, this to me, one of the strongest ways to draw to bring gravity to our ministry as a church is to have the joy of the Lord. So the question is, why should we have joy? Why should we have joy? Turn with me to the book of Philippians. It would interest you to know that the book of Philippians is all about joy. It's all about joy. That's the theme. And in Philippians chapter 1, as Paul starts this letter to the church in Philippi. He is in jail in Rome. He's in prison. And it was always fascinating to me that a man while he's in prison decided to <laughs> write about joy to his church. Philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Let's look at the first reason why we should have joy. He says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the first reason that Paul writes that we should have joy is that Jesus will finish his work in us. You see, there's nothing that robs your joy like sin. Nothing that takes away the joy. This is why in that picture-perfect example of repentance in Psalm 51, David didn't just ask to create in me a clean heart. He didn't just ask to renew a right spirit. He says, restore unto me the joy of salvation. 
and uphold me with your free spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. There is a connection to joy in salvation and sinners being converted. And once it is restored into Christianity, that when sin has been dispelled, one of the most joyful experiences in a Christian life is repentance. Did you know that? But we don't look at repentance that way because repentance is all about being on the wrong road and God letting you know you can make a U-turn. It's not too late. Jesus has begun a good work in you and he will perform it. You see, friends, it's not so much about how we start the Christian life, it's how we finish. There's always this fascination with your testimony. How did you become a Christian? It's not how, it's did you stay. The fact that your testimony was so powerful only makes it more painful when you leave. That's why Lucifer's fall is, how art thou fallen, O son of the morning? Sometimes many of us, we don't think we're going to make it in the Christian life. Fighting the good fight of faith. Fighting against sin, against selfishness. Reminds me when this summer in our canvassing retreat, they had a, um, or it might have been last year actually, I wasn't at the canvassing retreat this year. And last year we were at this canvassing retreat and they have this rock climbing wall. You guys probably know about this. Adventists grow up with rock climbing. I didn't grow up with rock climbing. I grew up with building climbing and trees. <laughs> Don't ask me why I was climbing buildings. So I went on the easy wall and I'm terrified of heights. It is like one of my ultimate fears. So I can imagine when the Bible says we will meet the Lord in the air, I will have obviously overcome that fear. So I climb the easy wall, and everyone's like, wow, you did good for a guy who's afraid of heights. And so as I walk around, my students are like, Sebastian, you should do the medium wall. So I'm like, all right, sure. So they buckle me up, I get on my little rope, I start climbing this wall, and I get halfway up the wall. And I remember looking, and there was this little part where you had to pull up your entire body weight with one arm. And I was like, there's no way. And I remember just hanging on the wall. And everyone's down below. Come on, you can do it. Climb, just pull yourself up. And I was laying on the wall, just huffing and puffing. And I was thinking in my mind, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And there were my own canvassing students yelling up to me, Sebastian, I can do all things through Christ. <laughs> and I kept huffing, I'm not going to make it. And I wonder how many of us climbing the Everest of holiness are hanging on the side of the mountain saying, I'm not going to make it. But the Bible says Jesus will finish his work. You will make it to the top of the mountain. You will one day stand on the very peak and summit of righteousness. He says, I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000. Having their father's name, they were on top of the mountain. And one day, friends, we will be in a place where Abraham never made it, where Enoch never made it. We will be standing there on the top of the mountain, and we will be able to see that Unlike the Moseses before us, 
who only saw the promised land, we will be the Joshua's to cross the Jordan. He took him to the mountain to see, but he never got to walk in. That is what lays before you, that Jesus will finish his work. No need to be discouraged. And it shows us, friends, that God has a resume. God has a, has a, uh, a portfolio of finishing his work. You read in Genesis chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and God had ended his work. You read on the cross... When it came to our redemption, Jesus there in some of his last words on earth, it is finished. Now, let me ask you a question. Creation, he finished. Redemption, he finished. Do you think you're going to make it? God has never failed. And if Jesus fails you, you'll be the first person. You'll be the first person. So in this experience, he says, why should we have joy? But unfortunately, along the Christian journey, we fall, do we not? Make mistakes, have shortcomings. And the prophet of the Lord, as if she foresaw that fall, as if she, as if she could foresee the darkness that would crowd the soul that has fallen under the powers of darkness, we shall often find ourselves weeping at the feet of Jesus for our mistakes and shortcomings, but we are not to be discouraged. No amens. We are not to be discouraged. What we need to understand, she says, is that character is not the occasional good deed, not the occasional bad deed, but the tendency of the life. Are you on the road to heaven? Are you striving for the mastery? And if you're running on the road, he says you're going to make it. Just make sure you lay aside every weight. Just make sure you put aside the sin that does so easily beset you. And then when you run the race, run it with patience, brethren. Don't get tired of God. Don't believe for one moment that Jesus will give up on you. He bought you with a price. And there's no way God's going to give up what he purchased at such a costly price. He's not going to let you down. And it reminds me of one of my favorite poems by Maya Angelou, still I rise. Thinking of that text in Proverbs 24 and verse 16 where it says a righteous man falls how many times? Seven times. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. So the question is why is he righteous, right? Because a righteous man rises more than he falls. And so the poem in the last stanza goes like this. It says out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Is there someone who needs to get up this morning? I don't know how the devil has beat you down this week. I don't know how he beat you down yesterday. But as we're running the Christian race, if you fall, friends, just say, still, I rise. Nothing more defiant to the powers of darkness than to get up.
Dust yourself off and say, Jesus, who has begun a good work in me, will perform it. It is not me. He will do for me that which I cannot do for myself. And therefore, I'm going to get up and let him finish his work. Don't stay down. Don't stay discouraged. Don't stay beat up. Don't weep and wallow in it. Just get up and keep walking. If that's clear, let's say amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Let me give you the second reason why we should have joy. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, the Bible says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, friends, the second reason is whatever happens to the child of God falls out unto the furtherance of the gospel. Let me tell you an illustration of this in my own life. Right after I had given my life to the Lord, I recall coming, training in campus ministries in Michigan, and during that entire year of my time, I was thinking about my past, the things that I had done, that were legal and illegal, but they were all immoral. And so as I finished my missionary training program, I could not shake my conscience. You must confront this. So I called up some people I had wronged years ago, and I said, look, the fact that I've become a Christian is no excuse. Then I called a detective. And I said, I need to talk to you about some crimes that I committed. He said, okay. I flew down to see him. Then I walked into his office. He popped the tape recorder, and I started having flashbacks of when I used to watch Law and Order. And I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) He says, please state your name. I told him my name. He says, please, go ahead. And I just started confessing on tape. He says, you can go back to Michigan. We'll let you know if any prosecution happens. Long story short, GYC 2004 happened. Unbeknownst to me, there was a warrant for my arrest. And I was picking up the GC president. Lord have mercy, he was merciful. (laughs) (laughs) That following February, it was one of my closest friends, Israel's birthday. And I had driven all the way to Berrien Springs to to see Israel for his birthday had a good time, and we were driving home. And I left before Israel left to go back to Ann Arbor. And as I was driving home, I was like, man, I need to get back home. So I'm speeding on Old 31 near Berrien Springs. And as I pass a car, I see headlights flash up in the darkness. And I said, oh, Lord, no. So I went over, and I was tempted to pull off on the exit. I said, okay, Sebastian, you are a missionary. (laughs) Do not try to run from the police. So I pull over on the side of the road. The cop comes up. He says, you know, license registration. I hand him the information. I'm sitting in the car. He comes back to the car a second time. He says, have you lived anywhere else besides Michigan? I said, "Um, yeah, California, Illinois, Georgia. Lived a lot of places. He said, okay, just checking. I think there's a mix-up, but I just want to make sure. Runs back to his car. Then he comes back a third time. He says, can I get your social security number? 
Now, does that seem odd to you? Yes. So when he leaves that time, the Holy Spirit says, Sebastian, you're about to get arrested. <laughs> those are one of those times you're like, what, Lord? <laughs> so I prepared my heart, and the Bible says, gird up the loins of your mind. So I, I straightened up. I said, okay. He came back to the vehicle, and sure enough, he said, Mr. Braxton, I'm going to have to ask you to step out of the vehicle. You have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. He began to read to me my rights, handcuffed me, and put me in the back of the cop car. And he took me to Berrien County Jail, called the police to pick up the car, which was not mine. And as I'm sitting there in the back of the car, I remembered having a discussion with my spiritual mother. It's as if we don't really have those in the church anymore. Mentors. And she had told me, and I told her, I said, I don't know if I'm going to go to jail. I don't know what's going to happen. She said, whatever you do, always remember this. You are a servant of God. And wherever God allows you to be, he wants you to serve him there. So there I was in the back of this Berrien County Sheriff in his car. Handcuffed, sitting in the back, and I said, are you a Christian? He looked at me and he said, uh, I used to be. I said, why did you, why, what made you stop? He said, well, there were some people doing some funny things with the money in the church. So I decided to leave and I said, we don't come to church for people, we come to church for Christ. I said, I understand your issue, but you're there to worship God and there may be people in that church that need a faithful person in there for them to encourage them. So you go to church. He got quiet. <laughs> and I saw his eyes look up in the rearview mirror and he said, these crimes that you committed, were these before you were a Christian or after you were a Christian? <laughs> I said, before, were it not for Christ, I would be doing the same thing. He got quiet again. We got there because my crime was committed in a far distant place I was considered maximum security fugitive. So they had to strip search me. So he comes, he pulls out, you know, I got Bible tracts in my pocket. <laughs> After he goes to that, he takes me into the, the little iron room where they have to strip search you and do all these things, take your fingerprints, whatever, and he says, I appreciate the conversation. I'll consider going back to church. Then I sat down in a room full of concrete. It was about four feet by five feet. I sat in there with 10 other men. They don't give you a fork. They don't give you a knife, just spoons. And as we sat in there, they held us in there for three days. I was sleeping on my shoes. And I remember each night there would be a new guard and I would ask him, can I have a Bible? And he would look at me and say, no, I can't give you a Bible. I'm like, why not? He said, you might harm yourself. I'm like... <laughs> I said, okay, could you explain? And the guy said, well, because you're maximum security, you're a fugitive. There's a warrant for your arrest, and you're far beyond where you should be. And so some people, they may, we give them books, they try to paper cut themselves to death. I said, really? Okay, so I can't have a Bible. He said, no. And he looked at me, he said... What are you in here for? You don't seem like a criminal. I said, well, I don't talk about it, but 
it was before I knew the Lord. He said, well, yeah, I can definitely tell you're not the average person in jail. I said, well, praise God. <laughs> Finally, they released me into population. Maximum security, no bars, iron doors, cameras in every room, and the guards never come in because we're supposedly the dangerous ones. Serial rapists, serial machine gun traffickers, people who move millions of dollars of illegal drugs. And as I walk in, they're all gathering there. It's almost as if it's this hazing ritual. And they want to see, okay, who's the new inmate? So I walk in, and they say, okay, what are you in here for? I'm like, I don't talk about it. I'm a Christian. They're like, you're a Christian? Okay, well, there's this guy over here. His name's Michi. I said, okay. And they said, Michi, he got caught with a million dollars worth of marijuana off the borders of Berrien. So they said, he wants to find God's will for his life. Can you help him? I said, sure. They bring him into the middle of the circle, and all of them are surrounding us, and I begin to counsel him from my memory. This is why you need to memorize the Bible. And I said, John chapter 7, verse 17 says, if any man wills to do his will, he shall know. So if you really want to do God's will, it's not just desire to know it, you got to want to do it, no matter what it is. So as I'm going on and on and on, I said, those are the points. If you do those things, God will make his will plain to your life. And I walked out the circle. I went to my room, met my roommate. His name was Alabama. <laughs> Go figure. And Oakwood is visiting with us. <laughs> but nevertheless, I sat down on my bed and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I cannot believe I'm in jail. And then immediately, within two minutes of me sitting there, I get a knock on my iron door. Gentleman comes and says, excuse me, brother, can I talk to you? Now, friends, I didn't grow up in the church. I've seen too many movies. And when men start coming to your room, I get nervous. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, you know I was trained in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I don't believe in violence, but Lord, I got to defend the temple of God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with my heart palpitating, I followed him to his room. Sat down, he started closing the door. I got even more nervous. I said, Lord, please, I just got here. And he says, well, brother, I heard you talking out there. I heard you talking out there, and I was thinking maybe you could help me. My girlfriend and I, we're going to be getting married in three months when I get out. And we've been thinking about how can we have a Christ-centered marriage? And as I heard you talking, I thought, man, this guy can help me. Could you teach me how to have a Christ-centered relationship? I said, for sure. But they won't give me a Bible. He said, oh, go talk to this guy. So I left his room. I went to the gentleman's room. He had a long beard. He's like the godfather of the jail, I guess. <laughs> so I walk in. I say, excuse me. Um, they said I could get a Bible. He said, oh, okay. So he lifts up his mattress. And he's like, what do you need? King James, New King James, NIV. I thought people kept drugs under the mattress. 
but apparently in Benton Harbor, the murder capital of the country twice in a row, apparently in this jail, they keep Bibles because we're not allowed to have any books, so he keeps it under his mattress. Then he gives me some lessons. Second Peter, he's like, yo, man, I got Bible lessons. I'm like, all right, thanks. I'll take the new King James. I go back to the room. The guy says, do you mind if my roommate joins us? I said, sure. So after that, he comes in. The roommate sits down. And next thing you know, as I'm starting a Bible study, two other guys step into the room. Before you know it, by the end of the Bible study, every single person in that maximum security room was crammed into that room listening to the Word of God. And at the end of it, you know, I'm a preacher, I got to make an appeal. So I said, how many of you want to commit? So they all raised their hands, I prayed with them, and afterwards the Godfather guy stands up, he says, you're a prophet of God. He sent you to us to teach us the Word of God. You have to give us Bible studies. I said, man, isn't this something? On a secular campus, I have to beg people to come to Bible studies, even Adventists. You go to a maximum security jail, they say, you have to give us Bible studies. <laughs> and so Paul said again in Philippians chapter 1, but I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So I started teaching Bible prophecy in the morning, and I taught practical Christianity in the afternoon, twice a day. And for three weeks, the one thing I appreciated about being in jail was the amount of time to pray. I'm dead serious. At least three to five hours a day. And after that, over time, my nickname became the good brother. That's what they called me. They're like, that's the good brother. And I was the vegan person in jail. <laughs> So then when my food would come in, they say, that's the good brother's tray. Don't mess with his food. And they were all looking out for me. I was praising the Lord for this. People that I was afraid would harm me end up being the very people that protect me. I'm telling you, friends. So now while I'm there, one night I'm praying. They lock down the doors. The guard comes by. After we lock the doors, he bangs on every door to make sure that we are in our room secured. They will never come in there if we are walking around. So after he comes in, he knocks on the door. I'm praying to the Lord. And while I'm praying, the Lord says, Sebastian, you're leaving the day after tomorrow. I said, okay. So I wake up the next morning, go to the prophecy Bible study, and I just start pouring out my heart to these men. And I said, listen to me. Don't make this jailhouse religion. Don't just change because you got caught and then go back out to the streets doing the same thing. And I said, because God told me I'm leaving tomorrow, this will not continue forever. They said, how do you know? I said, I know. How do you know that was God speaking to you? I know. Afternoon Bible study, same thing. And so the next morning we wake up, and that's the test, is it not? So I wake up, God is good. He lets you eat breakfast first. <laughs> he knew it was going to be a long ride. Wake up, and as soon as I was going for my Bible to start the Bible prophecy Bible study, the guard came in and said, Braxton, you're leaving, and everyone in the prison froze. And all you heard was, I told you he was a prophet. <laughs> That's all you heard. 
But why did that happen? I believe that the Lord did that to confirm to them that God was using me to teach them the truth. He wanted to leave them with a sign. Just know that was my servant that I sent to you. And I got the privilege of going back to visit with many of them who are still walking with the Lord. So here again, I would have you to understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. The second reason the Christian can have joy, in jail or in freedom. Because when I got down to the judge and I was sitting there looking, he said, what do you do, sir? I said, I'm a missionary. What? After they read off the crimes that I was accused of. You're a missionary? And he said, well, let me see if I can give you bond. Let me see if I can give you freedom. So all of a sudden, a detective walks up with a piece of paper, lays it on the bench of the judge. The magistrate takes it. He says, well, Mr. Braxton, this is interesting. Back in December 2004, a judge who had never met me, never knew my name, signed a document that said, if Sebastian signs this, he can go home free. He said, you're free tomorrow. This court is adjourned. And I walked back thinking to myself, from December the 7th, 2004, here it was March 2005, and all the four, five, six weeks I had spent in jail, I was really a free man. And what if I went into jail? Moping. What if I went into jail? No desire to serve God. Why, God, did you do this to me? I'm serving you. I'm doing your work. Imagine what work would not have been done. Because you can have joy in every situation of life. And in this sense, whatever happens unto you, it will happen unto the furtherance of the gospel. It's so that the gospel can go forward. And so you and I can have joy in life no matter what happens. Because Christ will be preached through your life. Christ will be preached with whatever happens. Your neighbors will look and say, her garden is struggling just like mine. How come she's still whistling another tune? That student is struggling in school just like me. How come that person has still got a song in their heart? Because Jesus is still going to finish his work. Whatever happens unto me will go to the furtherance of the gospel. That's why we can have joy no matter what happens. Third reason, quickly. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says this. He says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you. You see, the third thing, friends, is that God tells us, this is my joy. Can you imagine bringing a smile to God's face? Can you imagine bringing joy to God's heart? And he says, it's when his children are unified. I appreciated Marquise's comments this morning. 
to let us and remind us one more time in case we forgot, God does not separate us based on color, but by commitment. He doesn't separate us by ethnicity, but by excellence. He doesn't separate us at the end of time and say white sheep and black sheep. He says goats and sheep. That is how we will be separated, wheats and tares, righteous, unrighteous, holy, unholy. It won't matter. And God says it breaks his heart that when Sebastian goes to a church in Virginia, all Caucasians in the Sabbath school, and after the Sabbath school, they approach me and they say, brother, there's another church that's probably more suited for you down the road. It's happened to a friend of mine. It's happened to many of my friends. When you go to a church, and I visited one of our African-American churches, and I saw one white lady in the church, and I had to go say hello to her. I said, how are you doing? What are you doing? How, have you, how long have you been in this church? She said, four years. I said, really? I'm like, do you like it? Do you enjoy it? She says, it's pretty good. This is where I was baptized. It's the closest church to my house. And so as I got to meet her, I learned she had some burdens about her sons coming into the faith. And I went to the other church members. I said, yeah, do you guys know this lady? They said, who? Do you know this lady? I don't know who you're talking about. She's the only white lady in the church. <laughs> oh, that girl that sits up on the left side. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, brethren. It cannot be this way. God says, fulfill ye my joy. Be like-minded. And friends, we can be in union without being in unity. Just because Oakwood came up this weekend doesn't mean we're in unity. We could be in the same place, not of the same mind. Somebody say amen. amen. And in this sense, it is not about being in the same physical place because I have friends across the globe and we have the same heart. And when I see them, the love is the same. Doesn't matter the color, doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the gender. She loves Jesus, I love Jesus. She wants to go home, I want to go home. And therefore we confess that we are strangers and pilgrims in the earth and God is not ashamed to be called our God. But he's ashamed when he looks at his children and his sister, his own daughter, looks at his own son and she says, you're not my brother because your skin is darker than mine. What does that do to the heart of God? Friends, let me tell you something this morning, this evening. When we talk about race relations in this church, the person that I wish was alive was Adam. And I want Adam to come down to church and look down and everyone says, well, there's a black church and there's a white church. And Adam would say, I don't understand what you mean because you're all my children. You all came from me and Eve. And I can imagine as our earthly father, he would chastise us. What are you doing? You better go to the closest church, not the color church. Not the people that look like you, but the people that love like you. You see, friends, this is close to my heart because my mother left the church before I was born disenfranchised. She met my father at Oakwood. And her and my father doing something they should not have been doing came out with a child. His name was Sebastian. 
I was not the result of loving parents. I was a result of teenagers misbehaving. And right after they found out she was pregnant, she got expelled from campus. And my father stayed on campus. And my mother said, that's interesting. I can't get pregnant a second time, but he can get another girl pregnant, but you let him stay on campus. I'm not downing the, the institution or its standards. So my mother leaves the church, and I remember being six years old. And my mother dressed us up, and for some reason, she got it in her heart to try to take her children to church. We had never been to church in my life. And as my mother had us dressed up, we never put on dress clothes before, so I was super excited. So I'm like, man, this is cool. So me and my sister were walking with my mother, and as we were walking into the church, there was a black lady greeting people with a nice smile. And then all of a sudden, my mother at the cab driver dropped us off. She looked across the street and saw a white seven-day Adventist church. And all the black people came in, filed to the black church. All the white people came in, filed to the white church. And my mom said, stop walking, get back in the cab. We will not go to a racist church. And to this day, my mom does not know the Lord. That's why it's personal for me. Because I could have grown up in a Christian home, had this church got it right. How can the world be ahead of us in diversity? They can embrace a black president? We're still talking about black and white conferences. All I'm simply talking about is God's joy. And for some of us, we need to get this thing in our minds. He says, fulfill ye my joy, and I hate those that sow discord amongst the brethren. I've talked to pastors, and they say, Brother Sebastian, you just don't understand the issue. We worship different than them. There is no we and them, brother. There's either angels and every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Those are the two classes on the earth. The we and them is we angels to them nations. And I'm tired. I'm tired. Young people are tired. Parents are tired. Old faithful Adventists are tired. And we are the generation to make the difference, to fulfill God's joy, that we be like-minded. I'm almost done. Philippians chapter 3. And verse 12, fourth reason why we can have joy. Paul says this, he says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing, how many things? This one thing. I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press. He didn't say I crawl. He didn't say I walk. He didn't say I stroll or stride. God bless my ministry. He didn't say that. He said I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling. You see, friends, one of the reasons why the Christian can have joy is because God says you can forget those things that are behind. 
It's time for us to leave the past in the past. People say, well, Brother Sebastian, you don't understand where the black and white conferences came from. I don't care about the past. I'm pressing towards the mark. Friends, I don't know where you came from. I came from a bad neighborhood. I came from violence. I came from gangs. I came from people getting raped at school, in elementary school. That's where I came from. But the Bible says, remember not the former things. Because God says, why? Behold, I will do a new thing. I don't care what your fathers did, friends. And young people, get this clear. If we do what our parents did in their generation, we will be here another generation. We better understand that. We cannot do the same. We now have the opportunity to do that which our parents could not do, to do that which the ancestors could not do, the pioneers could not do. We could see Jesus in our generation. But where it starts is forgetting the past. A lot of us struggle to let go of what has been. We are bound by the past. Does somebody know what I'm talking about? The Bible talks a lot about this. Remember Lot's wife. No man having put his hand to the plow, looking where? Backwards, is worthy of the kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting it's not only the positive, it's not only the negative experiences that Paul asks us to forget, it's also the positive ones. A lot of us, not only, some of us are stuck in our negative past, other of us are stuck in our positive past. And we're like, oh yeah, that was that great experience. And I may tell you that testimony from being in jail. Yes, that's great, but I got to press on because that's not it. We're still on this earth. People still don't know the name of Jesus. You got to press on. And for this sense, SAU has accomplished a lot. Oakwood has accomplished a lot. But we got to forget and press towards the mark. Have we reached the standard? We have not yet apprehended a constant compulsion to keep going forward. Keep pressing on. Forgetting those things that are behind. I don't care if you sinned yesterday. Forget those things that are behind. God says, I will take your iniquities and put them in the bottom of the sea. And I will remember your sins no more. God says, I forgot. How come you can't forget? Fourth reason to have joy in the Christian life is forgetting those things that are behind. My last point And quickly, Philippians chapter 4. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. 
And he goes on to say, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God, he says, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now follow this. He says this in verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to abase, to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do how many? All. So here's the thing right here, friends. Paul says the fifth main reason that I'm getting to about why I have joy in the Lord while I'm sitting in a Roman dungeon is because I've learned how to be abased and I learned how to abound. I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I am. And I say, wait, Paul, I thought you said forget and press on. How can you be content? And he says, why can I be content? And we quote this verse, not understanding the context. Why is it that I can be content in whatsoever state I am? Because whatever my state requires, whatever my situation brings, I can do all things. You're not understanding. We are limited by our own mindset. We accomplish what we attempt. We achieve what we aspire to grab. I'm going to close with this story. One of my favorite illustrations. If anything, that reveals to us this whole concept of joy. It's about a friend of mine who took his son to a zoo. And I believe this, <laughs> this illustration is so simple, but it makes so much sense. As he went up to the zoo with his son, he was telling the story, and he said, well, as I was walking with my son, we came to the elephants. And as he came to the elephant, the cage was extremely low. And as the cage was low, and on the elephant's leg was a pink string. You're like, wait a minute. And so the son looks at his father and he says, Dad, how come the elephant doesn't break the pink string and just walk over the gate? It was extremely low. And the elephant was completely docile, completely submitted. And the father said, well, son, this is why. When he was a baby elephant, they put a chain on his leg. And he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick against the chain, and he could not break the chain. And then he said he got a little bigger, and so they put a bigger chain, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he could not break the chain. Now he was a full-grown elephant, and they put a stronger chain, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he could not break the chain. And so now, friend, now my son, they don't put a chain, they just put a string on his leg, because the string is not on his leg, it's on his mind. In his mind, he can't break it. And right now, we are sitting, friends, in a church that is like elephants in pink strings. We can't finish the gospel in this generation because we kicked and we kicked and we kicked and we couldn't finish. Because generations before us had the strong chain around their leg. 
Because our parents had the strong chain around their leg, they didn't have the courage to drop out of school, obey the will of God, and go be missionaries somewhere. They didn't have the courage to not just be a doctor, but to be a doctor on a mission for the Lord. And now it's time, friends, for us to break the pink strings, that you can do all things What would you do? What would you dream if you knew that every resource, every power, all wisdom was given unto you? What would you do? Jesus says, I already told you what you would do. You would go ye therefore into all nations. Baptizing. That's what you would do because all power is given unto me. All power. And so Paul says, I can be content because when I start dreaming, when I start pressing, when I think that, oh, God's not going to finish his work in me, when bad circumstances come around, I can remember, I can do all things. This is the culmination of joy. When you sit down and say, there is no restriction, only pink strings on this elephant. And how many churches, how many denominations become by the Adventist church and say, how come this elephant has a pink string on his leg? Baptist ministers coming to our church to teach us the health message. Baptist minister waving money in the parking lot saying, you have the truth. Baptist ministers coming and confessing and saying, yes, you are right on the state of the dead. You are right about the high priestly ministry. Methodists saying you are right about the sanctuary message. What's happening? What's happening is pink strings. Will you rejoice evermore? Because Jesus will finish. Break your pink string tonight. That's my invitation. I'm not going to make you bow your head. She can start playing the piano. I'm not going to make you bow your head. Close your eyes. This one, I want you to look me in the face. I want to look you in the eye. You and I, with these pink strings on our minds, you cannot limit what Southern can do. Only you limit what Southern can do. And the whole purpose of this week was to say, you can do what? More. That's all it simply boils down to. You can do more than you think. You could do much more than this. And in case you messed up, God says, I can give you one more chance. And he says, what am I looking for? More answers. That's what this week is about. You can do all things. What happened to dreaming in the church? Does anyone dream? That's why AY was ever created. That's why women's ministry exists, because people had dreams. And they believed the word of God, that it was enough. I can do all things. So how many of you tonight want to stand with me to rejoice forevermore in knowing that Jesus will finish his work. How many of you want to stand with me and say, I'm ready to dream for the Lord? To stand and to say, I'm going to forget those things that are behind. I'm going to press on. It's going to be a new day. I'm about to rise.
And the Bible says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And the eagle's eye soars amongst the highest heights of this world. So now, friends, as you have stood in a commitment that is being recorded in the very books of heaven as we speak, are you willing to dream? Are you willing to do more? Are you willing to do more than you've ever done before? There's somebody who's been giving sacrificially to the church more money. There's somebody that's been doing Bible work more time. Some of us, we've been doing our devotions more communion. Because you can do all things. Just tell me what you want to do. And God sits down and gives you the blank check. He says, hey, my child, I've already signed. Just tell me what, how much you want. Lord, I want all of College Dale. Lord, I want all of Chattanooga. It just reminds me when I was at Eastern, we used to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. We would pray right at the very steps in the cold winter, me and five other people, and we say, Lord, we want the entire campus, 6 a.m. every morning. We want the campus. We want revival. And to this day, professors have come. Sebastian, I want to know God's will for my life. Can you help me? I have deans of the College of Education coming down and saying, Sebastian, can you teach me about the health message? Students coming out there, 40, 50, tell us who is the Antichrist. You say, where did it start? It started because some young people believed. Because Martin Luther believed. And we already know that she reminds us, in case we forgot, the power that shook the world through the Reformation came from the secret place of prayer. Start asking God like he's really God. Lord, we want the campus. I want the dorm. I want this thing to go all the way. I want Southern to not be SAU University. I want Southern Adventist Missionary College. We don't produce doctors, we produce missionary doctors. We don't produce elementary education teachers, we produce radically converted, more than excellent, committed to Jesus, elementary education teachers. That's what this institution produces, more than the world. They cannot produce it. Harvard cannot produce you. Cannot. In all their wisdom, in all their philosophy, all their money, they cannot produce a person who has all power. Can't produce it. And that's why we go to Harvard and all their degrees, they sit at the feet of a man with a bachelor's degree to learn the truths of the oracles of God. Because the science of salvation is hidden. Willing to dream. Willing to dream. So as I make this call, my call is not for you to come forward. It's for you to kneel if this applies to you. And I don't want any Ananias and Sapphira's. Commitment today, backsliding tomorrow. 
Don't make a commitment if you're not serious. No intentions of following through. We do it too much in the church, and heaven knows. Standing because everyone else is standing. No sir, no madam. It's time for us to get real with God because he already knows. So my call is this, to kneel with me this morning and say, Lord, I am committing by the grace of God to dream for him. I'm going to kneel today. And I'm saying, Father, I'm asking you for the craziest thing I can think of in my mind. I'm asking you for something I thought I could never have. I'm asking you for something I thought I could have gotten a long time ago, thought I messed up. Now I'm in the wilderness like Moses, discouraged, on the backside of the desert, tending sheep. But today, I'm going to kneel before my heavenly Father. You said, Lord that we being evil know how to give good gifts. How much more? How much more? If that is your prayer, is that of your desire, I want you to kneel with me. I'm going to start dreaming for God. Don't kneel if you're not serious. Only for the sincere. And if you are standing, I respect you with all my heart. Because that means you're going to do it when you're ready to do it. But for those of us kneeling, we're saying, I'm ready to dream, Lord. I'm ready to dream. Let's pray together. Oh, most gracious heavenly Father, he that is abundant in goodness and in truth, the God who says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, not just the hills themselves. The God that David spoke about that says, we give thee but thine own. All that we have is thine, O Lord, a trust from you. We turn to that God this morning who has promised to perform his work in us unto the day of Jesus Christ. We turn to that God that can take whatever happens to us and cause it to fall out unto the furtherance of the gospel. We call upon our Father, whose joy is to see his children to be one. Father, our first prayer together right now is that you would tear down the walls in this church. Father, that you would somehow break down this separation by color and by race. We are asking, Lord, because we believe it's possible, because we can do all things. And we pray, Lord, that our very lives, our very friendships would demonstrate truly that God has made all nations of one blood. Remembering that the first place we were called Christians was in Antioch, where you had diversity. Lord, that's our first prayer. But beyond this, we are kneeling in consecration to say, Lord, we want you to do more than you've ever done before. And so we are kneeling to say, we want to dream for you. And we ask, Lord, that it would enter into our hearts as it entered into the heart of David to build a house for his God. Lord, please give us that heart that Joseph had, who was a dreamer. That even though his brothers in hatred and in jealousy said, come, let's slay the dreamer and see what becomes of his dreams. That, Lord, we will continue to watch God work his miracle in our lives. 
that this would be a bastion and a beacon and a, and a very uh, a laboratory, Lord, where these young committed Adventist people start doing what the church never thought was possible. We are asking that you would help us to break the pink strings, Lord. That we would see the shackles can come off this morning if we would just rise in Jesus' name. And now, Father, these young people, we have come because we want to be the generation. We want to be the era that Hebrews 11 was talking about, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. God, having provided something better for us, help us to be that generation. Help us to dream. And we pray, Lord, that the next time there is a convocation of this kind, it shall be in glory. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience so that we can rejoice evermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.